0: We are so, um, So I was listening to Jessica sing, we, we are so blessed to have all the, the gifts and talents of music abilities in our congregation, but also just that we are a singing people. God's people are a singing people. He puts joy in our hearts, and it's got to come out some way, and a lot of times it's through song, and even yesterday at uh, Miss Pat's funeral, which was, was a time of great grief, but it was also a time of great joy, and joy a variety of people from this congregation led us in in congregational singing. Uh, we're a people that always have a reason to offer praise to God no matter what happens here on earth. Whether it's good or bad or tragic, grieving, or the best day of our lives, God is worthy of our praise. And it's, it's awesome to be a part of a group of people that understand that and know that. It's also awesome to be a part of a group of people that are... Crazy enough to sit through Revelation, the last book of the Bible, because it's a doozy filled with all that symbolism. And we have made it through four chapters of this book, and we're going to make it through five by the end of this service, Lord willing. And you will recall that after speaking to the seven churches that represent all the churches on the earth, the people of God that we begin to get this vision of the throne room of God. So the whole focus changes from the churches on the earth up into the throne room of God. And the throne room of God in chapter 4 sets the pace and the focus for the remainder of the book. And that's why we spent a few Sundays in it is we have to understand the mindset and the attitude that is taking place in heaven around this throne. It's the epicenter of power. It's the epicenter of authority. And so all the crazy, weird, symbolic stuff that happens after uh, this in the book of Revelation where you get into the apocalypse of four horsemen and and the seals and the trumpets and so forth, all of that is coming from uh, the throne room of God. God possesses all power, all authority. And He's calling the shots. He has the plan. But as we saw this incredibly holy, powerful God, we also were treated to a vision of how the creatures of heaven react to such a glorious being. And what we find is that we find uh, angels of different ranks, of different abilities, but they're all around the throne and they just... Are in a an attitude and a state of complete adoration, worship, sacrifice. In essence, these great, tremendous beings who, who we would we would probably pale in comparison to the greatness of the way that these angels were created by God to serve Him, and yet these great beings are on their faces, they're on their knees, they're following, they're falling before this great God, and in essence, so what we see is. That the creatures in heaven just offer themselves. Like God is so great, everything he does, everything he says, every action it, it just is applauded with worship. And I think that it's important for us to understand this kind of mindset. We want to, because we're here on earth, but we're God's people, we're God's worshipers. And what they have going on in heaven is, is a complete heart, mind, soul, sold-out. And they give themselves, they offer themselves, their beings, to God. What might that sold-out attitude of total surrender, adoration, uh, and and not just that, but exaltation, just seeing God for who He is, what what might that look like on earth? I think the Gospels gave us... many different glimpses of what that might look like, but I want to share two with you this morning. And one of them is found in Luke 7. It's when Mary Magdalene... Mary Magdalene is uh, is a tremendous sinner. And she comes to Jesus and she understands her guilt. She's in a state of mind and she is understanding her guilt. She's understanding... her her filthiness, but here's the Messiah. And she has some inkling or understanding of what that means to her. Not just the world, but to her because she's a sinner. And she goes to Him and she bows at His feet. And she clings to Him and she is crying profusely because of her sin. She is eaten up by it. Tears are just flowing and there's so many tears that they drop onto his feet. They wet his feet and she begins to take her hair and wash his feet with her hair. And and she anoints his feet with oil and and perfume and and she's washing them and bathing them. So it's a combination of of tears, of beautiful uh, aroma. And why is she doing this? What a strange thing to do in life. She's doing this because Jesus has what she longs for the most and that is forgiveness. She wants to be set free from her sin and, and He can do that. And we, So we get this little earthly glimpse of a, a human being, I would say in their right state of mind, knowing their need, bowing before God in the flesh as like this poured out offering. We see it again with another uh, Mary. It's Mary of Bethany. And that is the sister of Lazarus and Martha in John 12. And she does something very similar, but for different reasons. She's not eaten up by her sin. She goes to Jesus and she has the alabaster jar of perfume. And this is the one that's really costly. costly. It's a lot of money in there. Of great worth, and she does the same thing, and she comes to Jesus, and he's reclined at the table, and, and she comes and, and places herself at, at his feet, and she pours the oil on that, and she uses her hair to wash his feet and caress his feet and bathe his feet. Now why, why that behavior? Simply because she gets it, she understands that for this rare moment in space and time, she is in the presence of God in the flesh. You don't get that every day. And so this is her reaction. That's why the behavior. She sees what's going on here. It's, it's unique. It's, it's precious. And Judas at this time was the treasure, and he's watching in his mind all of this precious oil that could have been sold and we could feed a lot of hungry souls or hungry stomachs with this money. Now that's ministry minded, that's kingdom thinking. And so Judas rebukes this act and yet we glean so much from Jesus' response in chapter um, 12.8. And he says, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And by God's grace, Mary was able to see that. I have God. And so that was how she responded. You know, and if, it, if this happened, perhaps in our presence, this is not your everyday behavior, even for worshipers. And we might think, that's a little crazy. That's a little over top behavior. And yet, I I would surmise to say that in their minds at that moment, you are crazy to not be bowing down before the Lord. You're crazy to not be washing his hair with your feet. You're crazy to not bring your tears, to not bring yourself before him, because he is that magnificent. And there are times in our lives when we might be prompted by the grace of God to do things that the world will think you're a fruit crate, a fruit cake. You're crazy. What are you doing? You're making me uncomfortable with your action. And we might say, oh no, you're crazy. You're crazy to not be adoring the living God. You're crazy. You're missing out on offering yourself to the Lord in this way. And I just find it amazing that in the midst of a fallen world, and these are fallen women, as we learned in Sunday school this morning, the, the, the fall, it, it affects our minds, our emotions, our ability to do everything, everything that we are, everything that we have to offer is tainted with sin. And yet in the midst of this brokenness and this pain and this suffering, they had the clarity of mind to connect body and mind and the divine. And do something absolutely beautiful that perhaps made others uncomfortable. And Jesus says, this is actually very appropriate. In fact, with the, uh, the, the Mary the sinner, Mary the Magdalene, uh, Jesus was at the house of the Pharisees. And they were rebuking him like if, if he was a prophet, he would know what a sinner she was. And he just completely turns the tables. When I came into this house, you didn't anoint my head with oil. You didn't wash my feet. I mean, look at the difference between true worship and, and a pecking order of judgment. So in, in heaven, we see the heavenly vision, but this can take place in different forms. Now, this, they didn't do this every day. They didn't cling to his feet every day. And Jesus didn't walk for three years with women at his feet Clinging. They worshipped Him in other ways. As we do, we worship Him in other ways. But God is the kind of God where there are moments where we will turn the world right side up, if you will, and perhaps be called by His grace to worship Him in a way that the world might think crazy, but it makes absolutely perfect sense. So, when we are treated to chapter 4 of Revelation, we see what makes perfect sense. I mean, what else could happen in heaven? God's there. And the greatest beings are falling before Him and they're offering themselves to Him. And He is worthy to receive it. Let me just give another illustration. I think it's important to understand and maybe to to also apply it uh, to our lives. And it reminds me of a plant seated in front of a window, and you know what happens. Most people in here, we got gardeners. And we got some serious gardeners and plant lovers in here. And they know how to care, but a plant will bend itself towards the light. It's really amazing to see. I mean, sometimes I take ours at home and I turn them around, so they're bent towards the darkness, and it doesn't take long when I walk by them again. Well, see, that they need light. Plants need light in order to bloom, to blossom, to thrive. In order for that plant to be what it was created to be, it needs that. It needs to soak it in. And so it just is always bending itself. Where's the light? I'm bending myself towards the light. That's what I need to, uh, to thrive. So it does that so it can reach its fulfillment. It needs the light to go through the different stages Uh, with the hope that one day it will become what it was supposed to be and a beautiful blossom or bloom or vegetable of some kind, whatever it might be. And so they gladly bend themselves towards the light. So what we think as we think about worship and what's going on in heaven, it's not just like this quick fix kind of thing where we get what we need. It's not that little mouse that runs out of its hole, scared, but it sees the, something it needs to eat, so it grabs it and it quickly runs back into its safe place and eats it. Our worship of God is not like that. We need God and we thrive in the presence of God and we have the angelic beings bending themselves in every way they can before God because they absorb from God in His presence what they need to be what they were designed to be. So that's how important worship is. It's not just neediness. It's not just obedience. It's not just loyalty. It is, it is our whole... It's a pouring out. It's, it's offering ourselves to God. And when we bend ourselves and we're in the presence of God, and yes, we obey and we do what we're supposed to, to do, we receive the very light and life that we need to mature and go through the stages that we're supposed to go through in order for us to be, well, our best selves, you might say. And in order for those angels to be them, their best selves, that's what they're doing. That's what their best selves do. They just soak in the sun. They soak in the glory. They soak in the presence of God. And so I want us to, and may God give us the grace to, Think about worshiping God in that way and the role that we play. We don't want to disconnect ourselves too far from what's going on in heaven in the book of Revelation. It, there's so many practical nuggets in the midst of all the confusion, and it's confusing. I'm way, at, I'm, I'm way ahead in my research and my reading of where we are today, and I maybe have this much more clarity of what's going on <laughs> or what's going to happen. But they're, they're just drinking it in. They're just drinking it in. And when we worship, we just drink in God. He promises a, His presence with us. The Spirit's here. And so we want to uh, drink Him in. So chapter 4 sets the stage. I said previously, we have it because it sets the stage for everything. And it, it becomes very dramatic. Boy, everything in heaven now is drama. Drama on steroids here. So let's proceed to, to chapter five. Then I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing, 14 verses. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Fortunately, in this chapter, things just kind of unfold step by step. So that's going to be my approach to this text this morning. The first we have the scroll. I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So now the focus shifts from God on the throne to what's in God's hand, what's in his right hand. And in his hand is a, a scroll. And it's obviously a scroll of tremendous importance because it has a lot of writing on it, more than usual. It's got writing on the front and the back. And it also has many, many seals so this is not a book, it's a scroll. We're used to books. At this time of history, books were just being invented. Very, very few people even knew what it was to turn a page in a book. What they had is scrolls, and they would take the scrolls and they would roll them up from end to end, not from one starting to the other like we do a roll of tape, but they take both ends and they begin to roll it towards the middle. And, to, and then they would unroll it and turn it to the place that they wanted to read. The scrolls were just one page. And you didn't normally write on the front and back. This was unusual because the way scrolls were made, you used animal skins or papyrus. And and the way they were made, they were smooth on one side. So that's the side that you were supposed to write on. The other side would be a little rough. The same thing with the papyrus, as they made different uh, layers of it, they purposely made a smooth side, and the back side would be a little rough. Though you could write on it if you had to, but it would be a little bit difficult to do that, to write on the outside. And they would do that if they needed more space. And you would think, well, if they needed more space, why, rather than writing on the back, why didn't they just, like, grab another roll of paper, another scroll? And, and why didn't God have a scroll in his right hand and then his left hand? Well, in that day, uh, scrolls that were of great importance... Maybe even legal importance. You wanted everything in, in one piece. You didn't want several different scrolls. And that mindset it was, if, if there's something broke off, broken off from this, I don't know that I can trust it as much as the original document. You wanted all the words, all the text, the original document in one place. And so rather than taking, uh, writing on several scrolls, they kept it on one scroll. I read where they would have scrolls up to 30 feet long. And some scholars said they believe that the reason uh, that Acts and Luke, written uh, by the same author, were two scrolls was because it was too long to write all in one scroll. But he is the author of both those books. And, the, and uh, they are both written um, at one time. But he had to use two different scrolls there. So the text is all there. It's all one piece. It has to be understood in its wholeness. So what's in the scroll? What's on it? All this writing, the front and the back. Well, it's not the the roll that was called up yonder. We'll get to that later. There is a scroll that has a name of God's elect on it. What is on this scroll simply are the plans and purposes of God. It's a plan, of purpose of God for the redemption of humanity. For the redemption of all that He brought into being. He has a plan to bring it all back. To set it all right. And it's all written in this scroll. How things will proceed and also how things will consummate in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's where all of history is headed. And that's the main message of Revelation. Is that there's a battle... And God's going to win it. God's people come out on top. Everything's going to be in its proper place. Those that deserve eternal death will be there. Those that deserve, by the grace of God, eternal life will be there. Everything's going to be brought back. And all of this and how it transpires, the plan and purpose of God, it's in this scroll. This is a very important document. And it's in the right hand of God. Of course, the right hand symbolizes a power and authority. We use it all the time in warrior terms as well. Jesus sits at the right hand of God. It's a, it's a position of power. And he has all power and authority. And it's sealed with seven seals. And they would take these scrolls and roll them together from each end and uh, most of them would be tied with string or like a, a, a leather piece of leather shoelace or something to hold it together. And in some cases they would take a whole piece of Uh, papyrus paper, and just wrap the whole document, seal the whole document with seals. Now, seals were um, usually used when something wasn't for the public eye. You know, it was a message from me to you, or it was something very official, uh, something very legal, and the more official it was, the more you would seal it. Now, it's interesting because if it's sealed, the idea in that culture is it's not for you to touch. It's not your business. Now that wouldn't fly in our cultures as evil as we are. If it's not locked down and behind two inches of steel, we're going to try to peek in it. But in that day, people were scared even for a wax seal to break it because they knew that the, uh, they, they would pay the price for that. So the more official it was, in many cases, the more seals it would have. And in this case, it has seven seals. And in history, it tells us that the Roman uh, emperor um, Vespasian, who actually lived in the later part of the first century, or ruled in the later part of the century, first uh, century, his last will and testament was sealed with seven seals. So the scroll containing God's purposes, it's very official. It's very, very important. It's in His right hand. And in that day, once you broke the seal, that's what whatever was in the context came into play. So if you have a a last will and testament or a legal document and it's still sealed, it uh, doesn't have any authority to it yet. It's not official yet. You don't know what's in it yet. But when you break that seal, that's when... The moment starts that this shall come to pass based on what is written in the seal. So the seals have to be broken in order to see what is in it. So this chapter opens with a very dramatic scene. Uh, you have God and then you have this mysterious seal and it's packed, it's filled with words. And it's, it even has seven seals on it. And then the big question goes out, number two, who is? Can open this. There it is. It's, it's obviously very important. And it's sealed tight. Now how are we going to get into it? Who can do it? I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So an angel poses this question, not just any angel, but a mighty angel with a mighty voice, a loud voice. Uh, everything in heaven, you will remember, is loud. It's very dramatic um, text here. And they probably have heavenly bags under their eyes up in heaven because it's so loud, nobody's getting any sleep. There's no sleep or slumber there. It's because there's just so much worship. And everything is extreme. So, with his mighty voice, it's a commanding voice here. And it's not an invitation. It's, it's more of a challenge. It's not like, okay, who wants to be the first one? Who wants the first honors to come in here and maybe we'll take turns with the different seals? It's not that. It's is there anybody even worthy to approach this holy God and to put their hands on this very important document? Is there anybody anywhere that's even worthy to approach this scene? Is there anyone in the entire universe capable of of unleashing the plan because whoever it is that breaks the seal, that means, okay, now it's active. You just lit the fuse. Now it's official. What, whatever was in there, you let it out. Is there anybody worthy to do that? And for the first time, and as far as I know the last time, in this book, heaven is quiet. Heaven is quiet. It's like this awkward silence because the challenge went out. Who is worthy? And it's so silent that John, the Apostle John, in, in, who is envisioning all this, is treated to all this. He's in it, he understands the importance. This is the purpose and the plan of God and how all things will be consummated in Christ. But in order for it to even to happen, somebody's got to open, break that seal, and nobody's talking, nobody's coming forth. So what does he do? He breaks down. He weeps profusely. He's just all torn up. He's all broken up. I began to weep loudly there, now it's loud again. So it was silent for a little time, and now it's loud again, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it now i think that the main reason my opinion is the main reason john's crying has to do with unleashing the plan and purpose of god because jesus taught his disciples enough about the end times and enough about trials and tribulations and so forth that they had an idea they they had a an eschatology an understanding of the end times and, and how things would go down and the understanding that sin has to be judged and we need the blood of Christ to be saved and redeemed and atoned for and so forth. So I think that he, he wanted to know what was in it, but he already had at least a general idea. But I think most importantly, he was weeping because if nobody breaks open those seals, then the plan of God just is right there and it doesn't go anywhere. He understands the purpose of this vision. It's got to because there's a lot going on in the world. I'm sure he was concerned about the churches. I mean, how's this all turn out? Where's the relief coming? What what becomes of us? I I need more information here. And nothing will be set straight unless those seals are broken. So heaven is loud again with the sound of John's weeping. And then the, the drama just continues to build. Then we have... The Lion and the Lamb that come into the scene. So one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, behold, the Lion and the Lamb, uh, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a Lamb standing as though it had been slain. And with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. So we have the imagery of a lion. This lion. Hallelujah, there's somebody that is worthy to do it. And that somebody is a lion. The lion of Judah. And this goes back to Genesis. Chapter 49.9 When uh, Jacob was blessing his sons, they came before he died and he blessed each son. And he said to his son Judah, Judah is a lion's cub or whelp. He's the lion. So in other words, the, well, the lions are king of the jungle. And so through the tribe of Judah will come the king of Israel. He will be the monarch. He will be the ruler. The worthy one is the lion, the monarch, the one in the line of the royal line of David. But further, the worthy one is the root and Shoot. Now, this is tricky here because there's, something, there's two things taking on. Now, you have perhaps tried to cut a tree in your yard and you have the stump. And what happens sometimes? It, it comes back to life and there are shoots from it. And so the tree or whatever it is continues to grow. That's the shoot. So you have this idea that shooting from the, the stump of Jesse was this king, and that was David. He came from the line of Jesse, and he was king. But you also have the root. So in this being, in the one who's worthy in heaven to open the seals, also came before the stump. So he's not just the shoot, he's not just in the royal line, but he existed before the stump existed. So what you have in this line is the beginning and the end. He He's that worthy. <laughs> he's not just in the line, he was before the line comes from Isaiah 11:1, "There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit." So he is the shoot and the root." And what has he done? Scripture tells us that this person that is worthy has conquered. So now we understand that there's been some kind of fight. He's worthy because he's the king, he's the ruler, he's the rightful heir, but he also is worthy because he conquered something, he fought against something here. There's been a battle and he prevailed. And so therefore he's able to open these scrolls. He has, he alone, he alone out of every created thing is the only one worthy to open these seals and set into motion the plan and the purpose of God. He who accomplished redemption is the one that is worthy to set it into motion, if you will. It's an interesting vision because we, we, uh, the angel says, there's the Lamb and He's worthy. But when John looks, what does he actually see? a lamb not a lion did i just say lo- a lamb and so anyway john if i mixed it up excuse me i didn't i didn't set it right so he describes the lion but when john looks he sees the lamb and he doesn't see this great conqueror he sees the lamb and it's one who's been slain it's it's a bloody mess what he sees there at the throne of god and so the idea is that though yeah there was a fight there was, there was a struggle but the lamb was slain, but prevailed and conquered in the end. was powerful. There's power in this gentle lamb. There's power in this slain lamb. He's majestic. Uh, this, he gave his life as a sacrifice, but he came back to life. So there's a blending of metaphors here to describe this one that is worthy. He goes on to say that he has seven horns and seven eyes. The horns are symbolic of, of kingship rulership again. We get it from every angle. And the seven eyes, of course, you get the idea, if mom, and, if mom has seven eyes, you're in big trouble. Because just the two catch just about everything. But it's that idea, it's that God sees all. He knows all. Nothing escapes His sight. He's absolute sovereign. So unlike the other creatures, we also notice That he is between the throne and the other ones that uh, apparently keep their distance. There's a distance from the throne. There's a big enough distance for the lamb to be in there. So you're starting to see that he is separate from these other great beings. He alone is worthy. But he's closer to the throne than any of the other creatures are. As close as they would like to be. They get as close as they possibly can get. But this lamb is even closer to the throne. And when you begin to connect the dots and you see how the angels respond to the One who's worthy to open the seals, you see that the Lamb is God. Because their response is not only is He worthy and He alone is worthy, but their response is to fall down before Him, bow before the Lamb and worship Him which only God deserves. And so the lion and the lamb is none other than god this becomes clear verse 8 the 24 elders fall down before the lamb and they begin to sing to the lamb they begin to praise the lamb which they previously did for god worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for god from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. So if there was any question about who this is. It's, it's the king. It's Jesus Christ. It's the land that was slain. He is God and he is worthy. And they sing a new song. Fourth, uh, fourth point verses 7 through 14. They have their harps. Now the harps in, in, the, in the first century, when they would be reading this, the harps aren't the kind of harps that we would be used to seeing today in, in concerts and so forth that are about this tall and you have to sit down to play them and they have all these strings and they put forth a beautiful sound. But the harps in that day, they were smaller. They maybe had ten strings. They were more like a guitar or a banjo or something like that. And they were used mostly um, for joyful singing and worshiping and praising. Uh, that's, the Israelites did this all the time. They break forth in praise. It was an important instrument in their lives of worship. And we also, you might remember in the Old Testament when God's judgment fell upon His people and therefore because of their rebellion and idolatry they were taken into exile in Babylon. And so the joy is gone. And we find in... somewhere in... I'm looking for my, oh, Psalm 137, 1 through 4, By the rivers of Babylon, there we hung up our harps. Why? Well, we're, we're, we're not in our land anymore. What's there to, to be happy about? What's there to be excited about? We just don't have, us, have it in us to praise. And so we're going to take this instrument of joy. And we're just going to hang it up. But now here in this scene, you have all the harps are broken out because there's great reason to praise. There's great reason to celebrate here. It's all reversed and they're singing their praise to the Christ who will consummate all things. So the intensity of celebration just grows. Well, then they're going to grow it and they're going to pull out the bowls of incense. And the incense uh, represent the prayers of the saints. Psalm 141, 2. Let my prayer be set before you as incense. Incense was very popular. It's not as popular in our culture. But that culture needed it. They needed incense more than we needed incense. Because uh, they, um, yeah, they didn't bathe as much as we did. A lot of them um, dwelled in the same place as their animals did. You had animals on the bottom and you slept on top or whatever, and so it was just a uh, more odorous culture there. Even in the temple of God, you can imagine with all these animals that come into this temple, and you have their uh, fertilizer in the temple, that their natural made fertilizer in the temple, but also the slaying and the blood, and and if you've been in a butcher shop, it's not a pleasant smell. And so even in the temple, God said there should be incense burning all the time. And some of that was for practical reasons, but it's so that you can have a sweet atmosphere. It's, it's a nice place to be. And it's not a stench to his nostrils. And the whole idea of the prayers of the saints is that when, when in the heavens here, what you have is we're getting these bowls and we're going to offer these to this worthy lamb. And he loves the prayers of the saints. He loves them. That, that provides for him this sweet, Pleasant aroma for him to be in and to enjoy. The prayers of the saints are a powerful thing. You know, just, just talking to God. Just communicating with God. He loves it. It's sweet to him when it comes from a pure motive. When you know who you are and you know who he is. If you're a, a faker and a pretender, it's a stench to his nostrils. It's displeasing to him. But when we just come before Him and pour out our hearts and talk to Him about anything and everything, and we're real and we're true and we're honest, He loves it. It's a delight to Him. It's a part of this celebratory atmosphere here in heaven. The oils and the incense. So it covers up. They had the oils and the anointing oils and then the incense that covers up the smell. And I don't mind saying it. When the Geyser treats going on here. And we've been here a couple days in a row. Eating all that good food. We need to invest in some incense for these bathrooms. All three of them in the sanctuary. It would be a perfect application for that. So the prayers of the people offered with pure hearts. It's a sweet smell. And as I said in our time of worship. So this is a new song. Well, what's new about it? The, the initial song in Revelation, they were praising God because he created them. And the whole reason we exist, Lord, is because you made us, and we want to offer you praise for that. And here, the new song, the new lyrics, have to do with redemption. They are praising God for what he has done, this, this lion, this lamb. And we're going to um, close with a few things we can learn about this song. First of all, it was a bloody redemption. Verse 9, by your blood you ransom people. So blood was spilled. Mankind is redeemed and ransomed only because the Lamb was willing to spill His blood. Uh, We love to talk about, the world doesn't like it much, but we love to talk about the blood of Christ because we understand what it means to us. We understand that atonement takes place because of the blood of Christ. And, and I remember hearing somebody, no, actually it was, a, it was a, an Episcopal evangelist who came to Bible college at the time and he said, we love to talk about the blood of Christ as if one drop had enough power to change everything. And he said, that's not true. One drop of the blood of Christ will not change everything, will not bring forth redemption. Of course, we're all on the edge of our seat like, whoa, he just stepped on the blood of Jesus. He said, because the life is in the blood, it's got to be more than one drop. Christ had to bleed enough to die. He had to bleed enough, lose enough to lose his life for the life to come out of him. That's how redemption takes place. It's more than just a drop. Second, it's a comprehensive redemption. Look at this, it's beautiful. What Christ accomplishes from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, who is left out? I mean, we're in a world where we just leave everybody out. We find reasons to start clicks and do this and do that. What group's left out? What ethnicity is left out? None. What color's left out? What gender's left out? There's nothing left out. It's comprehensive. Redemption because that is in the plan of God. You don't see what we see, the despising of different things and different races as we have here. The beautiful thing that God accomplished. And then lastly, it's an intentional redemption. You ransom people, why? Intentionally for God. And I'll close with this. Because we want to understand this process of salvation is that God does not just save us from our sins and give give His life for our sins so that we can just turn around and sin again. He doesn't wash us up and turn us back around and send us back in the world and say, okay, there's your free pass, now you can live how you want. We have to understand the full, total package, the comprehensive package of salvation is that God redeems us For Himself. He redeems us for us to be a people that live for Him. When He set the Israelites free from bondage in Egypt, He brought them out what? He brought them to the mountain to be His people to worship Him. We are redeemed by the Lion and the Lamb to be full-time worshipers of God, to give our minds, to give our hearts, to give all of ourselves to worship the Lord, to conform to the image of Christ. It's, it's a whole package. It's not a free pass to do whatever we want. It's a free pass to do what we should do based on who God is. And heaven gets so excited about all this, I won't take the time to read verses um, 11 through 14, but everybody joins in on it. And I I love it because Old Testament uh, Hebrew poetry often pulls in everything it can into the celebration. you got the trees clapping their hands, the rocks are crying out in praise, and in Revelation here, everything, every creature in heaven, earth, under the sea, everywhere there's any living thing, they're all praising this worthy God. Lion and lamb. And they all say amen. And of course the elders fall down again. They never got up. But they fall down again. And they worship the Lord. And so if we just kind of bring it back to where we started. With this incredible adoration of God who's on the throne. And the beings are offering themselves. They're drinking it in. So that they can be them, their, their best, best selves if you will. They're bending themselves. To God. The universe is harmoniously living out their perfect intention. And so we leave with that mindset. You know, at our best, we are being our best selves when? When we just wake up and offer ourselves to God. When we And when we drink in the glory of God and we drink in the truth of God and the promises of God and the presence of God and then we just offer ourselves back to Him and it's this constant cycle of remaining and abiding in Christ, the Lion and the Lamb. And He is worthy, worthy, worthy of it all. May God bless the preaching of His Word.